Hey, good morning. I'm, I wanted to take just a minute or two from Harry's class to let you know what's coming up starting next week. So Harry is rounding out his class on Thessalonians uh, this morning. And then next week, um, we're going we're gonna to bring in um, our new deacon, John West. He's going to begin a, uh, a Sunday school series on, on American church history. He's going to focus in, uh, not exclusively, but sort of have a special emphasis on American Presbyterianism. Um, but, but he's got an interesting approach. So the first four or so classes uh, that he's going to teach will be more on, beginning on why we should study church history at all. And then he's going he's gonna to go back to the, the events that, that lead up to what takes place in America. So you're not just learning about American church history out of context, but the context in which it was formed. So uh, this is John's, he's taught, he and Suzanne have taught um, youth Sunday school classes for decades, I think. This will be his first, first time teaching an adult class from what I understand. And so he's 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 nervous. He's expressed some some uh, you know being a little nervous about it and coming in front of this crowd, you know. And, and you guys are a tough crowd. And so uh, just pray for John. But just uh, and he's he's going to be seeking interaction and engagement from what he's talked to me about. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions or raise you know just if you've got points you want to uh, make or whatever. Don't be. I don't think he's going to uh, be at all put off by that. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to sort of set the stage for you about what will be coming. And so he's, he's, got, a, he's got a rough idea of, of it should take the quarter, the next quarter. Uh, I know we're a little bit off cycle, but that's okay. Um, uh, because he, he, the, the Wests and David Lopez go, uh, they sort of do more of a semester style with the uh, junior high and senior high kids. So, uh, so he's going to do roughly about three months, but it all depends on how much interaction there is. If there's no interaction, it may be a little shorter. If there's a lot of interaction, it may be a little longer. Uh, and so uh, at any rate, I just wanted to let you all um, uh, make you aware of what's coming, uh, but also just wanted to show or express my gratitude and pre- appreciation for Harry and, and the class he's led. Unfortunately, I missed all, but I'll, I'll catch a little bit of the class today, and then I've got to leave at 10 to get out to Fort Worth. Um, uh, for their service that starts at 11. But I, I've missed all of your classes in this quarter except for last week's and then part of today's. Um, but I know just, just spending time in Thessalonians is, uh, uh, you know, it's a worthwhile venture. Those are some some challenging letters to, 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 to work your way through. So anyway, um, I'll, I'll turn things over to Harry, And uh, but, but thanks, for, uh, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Harry. Well, that's something to look forward to next quarter. So... Um, pray for John as he uh, gets ready to teach uh, to us. We are in Second Thessalonians, and we are wrapping it up today. I'll have to tell John that if he's not getting much interaction, just bring up the second coming of Christ, and we'll get everybody talking. Second Thessalonians, we are in chapter 3, and we are going to do the entire chapter in one Sunday, so we will have completed our task. Um, let's pray together as we get started. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, study uh, that we have been um, that we have been conducting and going through the last uh, three months or so. And we pray that this has been valuable time for us. Help us today as we study your word. We pray that you would guide us and help us to learn things that will be um, helpful uh, to our Christian lives and will be to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead 
and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we will have confidence, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that we are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother that is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. How mu- now mu- such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, it is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so we're all done. We have 45 minutes left. Okay. So um, in this uh, chapter, in the conclusion, Paul begins with a request that they pray for him. And then while... um, requesting that they pray for him he also prays for the Thessalonians or the Thessalonians and then in the second section of the chapter he deals with the one ethical issue the one moral issue that he addresses in this letter and so really the second Thessalonians is designed to deal with one important doctrinal issue that is multifaceted that being the return of Christ and then one uh, moral issue that is Um, singularly dealt with in this paragraph in the middle of this chapter which concerns moochers in the church and so he deals with that through the main part of this chapter and then uh, and then brings it all to a close so those are the three things uh, that we will briefly look at um, today so first of all then you notice that there is a request for prayer and so in the first two verses he says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But Paul's writing this from Corinth. But remember that um, the context of this is that everywhere he's been recently, really everywhere he's been through his entire ministry, but certainly on this missionary journey, has been troubled. So he had gone into Philippi, got arrested there, and then was kicked out of town, went to Thessalonica. Uh, there, uh, they were, he was forced to leave Thessalonica. He went to Berea, um, 
the gospel had some initial success there, but then people from Thessalonica, his enemies in Thessalonica, heard about it, followed him to Berea, got him kicked out of Berea. He went to Athens. In Athens, there were a few believers, but by and large, his message was mocked. And then went on to Corinth, which is where he is when he's writing this. And so in Corinth, there was initial persecution, and you may remember from the book of Acts, that Paul is promised in a vision that he's going to have a more extended ministry in Corinth. And so he's somewhere in the midst of all of that activity where there's initial persecution. The authorities in Corinth end up taking Paul's side, and so he's able to stay and have a fruitful ministry there. Even if he's in the portion of that where it's calming down and he's able to Um, work uh, less impeded by persecution, it's understandable that he would want them to continue to pray that evil men would be, uh, that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men and that the gospel would flourish. Here Paul actually quotes um, from Psalm 147.15, which reads, he sends out his command to the earth, His his word runs swiftly. And so that's That's the citation that's in the back of Paul's mind when he writes that that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. The other thing to notice from this prayer request is that Paul doesn't see any contradiction between what he has just said at the end of our chapter 2, where he talks about God's initiative in election ultimately leading to our glorification. And so God has established before the foundations of the world everything that he's going to do. He sees no contradiction between that and his prayer request that pray that the word of God will run swiftly and be honored. Um, This is um, a problem that people come up with that, you know, if God's planned it all in advance, then why pray or why get engaged or all that sort of thing? But it's not something that Paul tries to explain away in in any way. He just assumes here and assumes that the Thessalonians understand that all of this is consistent. God has planned for all that will come to pass. God has planned for all that will be saved. God has called upon us to pray that the word of God will go out and be honored, that people will believe. Um, Any um, ism that causes us to think that we can leave any of that out is unbiblical, right? If we think that God is not sovereign over all things, including in salvation, then we're leaving things out that are in Scripture. We believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. He has chosen before the foundation of the world those who will be saved. We believe in praying that people will be saved. Um, And Paul... um, who has some of the most wonderful passages in the New Testament on election, also prayed and actively engaged at much personal cost in seeing that the word went out. These are not inconsistent. The idea of divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not opposed to each other. They are compatible. And we should always remember that. Um, The same Paul who in... um, Romans 9 said that God had decided some things before Jacob and Esau were even born. And so it is with God and his 
um, electing at his uh, sovereign election um, for salvation for all of us that would be saved. He, after going through that in chapter 9, he immediately in chapter 10 says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He doesn't, um, he doesn't indicate any contradiction. God is determined before the foundation of the world who will be saved. I pray for my people that they will be saved. No contradiction there. And we ought to do both. And so um, he has talked about election. He talks about praying that the word of God would be honored, uh, which is to say that it would be received. And we ought to do both of those things. Um, there are some people that I, that seem very passive about evangelism and about... Um, about um, even about missions in some cases. Um, if we are more passive than we should be about evangelism and missions, um, we shouldn't blame Calvinism for it. Because some of the greatest missionaries and evangelists in the history of the world have been people that believe the things that we believe about election uh, to eternal life. And so we should uh, bear that in mind. On the other hand, it is important to realize that a belief in election will protect us from being tempted to engage in some of the kinds of manipulative activities that some people do in the name of evangelism. And so um, it's not as though um, there's no impact of believing in election on the way that we engage in evangelism. You know, when we um, pray for the lost or when we share the gospel with the lost, uh, we do so in the context of understanding uh, God's sovereignty, and so we don't um, do it manipulatively or uh, with high-stakes pressure on people or that, those sorts of things, because we understand that God is sovereign in those things. So that's Paul's prayer request. He says, pray for me. And it's not a, a lot of commentators will point out the humility of Paul here. He's a great apostle, he's a great missionary and all that. But he's not, um, he, he, he recognizes that he needs the prayer, uh, the prayers of these uh, folks that he had been involved in their conversion. And so um, he asks them to pray for him. Any thoughts about that? Or? See, I'm not going to let you ask any questions today so I can get done. Save your questions for John next week. <laughs> after uh, praying, after asking for prayer, he then uh, gives them a, a reminder and then prays for them. So look, starting with verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we will have confidence in the Lord about you that we are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now notice that Paul had concluded verse 2 by saying, not all have faith. And of course, when people don't believe the gospel, some of them will listen. They say, I don't agree with that, or I'm not going to accept that, and they just go on. They, uh, if it works for you, have at it. Um, there are others that will vigorously oppose Christianity, and these are the kinds of opponents that Paul is talking about. They not only rejected the faith for themselves, but they tried to stop it from going uh, to anyone else. And so not all have faith. But notice that immediately he turns from the opposition of people 
to the protection and the superior faithfulness of God. So not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And so there's a contrast there. There are people that oppose the gospel. Um, but that need not cause us to fear, either for our own Christian lives or for the, uh, the ability of the gospel to go out. And so uh, even in the midst of great persecution, the gospel will prevail. Why? Because even though evil men will oppose, God is greater than evil men. And so it's the faithfulness of God and his determination that he will establish and guard us against the evil one. That's what we can and should have confidence in. And so it's actually not surprising when the church um, is persecuted. I think that it has become, we have, we have reached a point in our culture where it's surprising to us because, you know, we have a long history in this country and in much of the Western world that we are used to the culture going along um, with the church. That sort of has become the norm uh, in the United States. We sort of expect um, the government to be agreeable to uh, what churches are doing and so forth and and the people that live around us, even if they don't go to church, they'll respect us that we do and, and all of that. Um, we should recognize that across uh, the world and throughout history, what we and our um, immediate ancestors have experienced is not the norm. The norm has been um, persecution, if not for Christians as a whole, um, once the uh, Protestant Reformation broke out, um, certainly for Protestants and Reformed people across Northern Europe, there were intense periods of persecution. Um, our um, Presbyterian and Reformed forefathers in England and Scotland and in uh, continental Europe at various times endured intense persecution for believing the kinds of things that we talk about here Sunday after Sunday. And so, and then of course, that's just um, internecine conflicts among Christians. If you go into other parts of the world, including today in Muslim areas and communist areas, which nowadays mostly means China, um, but in, um, in various parts of the world, um, our brothers and sisters suffer intense persecution. That's the norm. And yet the gospel goes out. Evil men are not able to prevail because God is faithful. Um, which brings us to the thought that as we see our culture changing, will the church have that confidence that Paul talks about here? But yeah, there are evil men that will oppose us, but we can be confident that God's going to prevail because God is faithful and God is greater than them. I fear that in many sectors the church has become soft in that we many uh, feel a sense of dependence on the support of the culture around us. And so um, I, I do think it's important for uh, Christians to prepare for the culture 
uh, becoming more um, hostile toward biblical Christianity. And so we need to be prepared for that and recognize that even if people don't like us, uh, nonetheless, God is faithful and his word can grow out. A few years ago, um, one of the presidential, okay, I'll go ahead and say who it was. It was Mitt Romney. When he was running for president or running in the primary, and there were concerns that he was uh, Mormon. And what would that mean as far as uh, would people accept a Mormon as a candidate for president? And so he actually gave a major speech and um, in Dallas in which he talked about religious freedom. And much of the speech was good. I'm not criticizing um, Senator Romney. But one of the things that he said in the speech was that religious freedom is necessary for religion to prosper. Um, again, much of what he said in the, in the speech was good, but that one statement absolutely is not true in the history of Christianity. Christianity has thrived even in parts of the world where it was most hated. In the early Roman Empire, um, the first 300 years of Christianity, there was severe persecution and yet it's spread all over the world. And so it has been, even in our day, there are reports, and I, I don't know um, how to verify them, but there are reports nowadays that even in uh, the Middle East, in Muslim sectors of the world, that, um, that there is a movement of people turning to Christianity. Uh, I, I've not verified that, so uh, forgive me for bringing it up. But if it is true, isn't that a wonderful thing, that in an area of the world, uh, certainly in China, where it, to varying degrees uh, Christianity has been um, opposed. There have been house church movements and until recently even large established churches um, that, you know, you, even though there is no, certainly no support for Christian mission, it, it's been happening. And so um, it's not necessary for there to be political freedom for the church to thrive. All that's necessary is for the for God to be faithful, and He is, and so the uh, Christianity is spread even in parts of the world where it's been severely opposed. Uh, but this is a reminder also that in the midst of a hostile culture, it doesn't do for us to just say, "Well, um, the world around us hates us; they're opposed to Christ; they're opposed to our religion," but we have a program. We have a program, but so what? Is that enough to turn away um, the hostility of a culture that's much larger uh, than the church? Uh, it, it's, it's a good idea to be active, but what we most need to do is what Paul's doing. Pray. Depend on the faithfulness of God because that's what ultimately is going to prevail. And then he does pray for them. We have, uh, he says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And so that's his prayer for them as they continue to suffer persecution themselves. That's the section on prayer. Any thoughts or comments before we move to the moochers? Excuse me, I have a comment or a question about the persecution of the church in today's area. Recently, it was uh, presented to me that the, the church's belief of, uh, of the Bible in terms of some of the things that 
Bible counts as uh, not acceptable is trumped by love. And that's within the church itself. And so the way I, uh, I'm able to respond to that with biblical aspect is that if you love God, you'll obey his commandments. So that's the love. But that is something that is presented as able to overturn some scriptural stuff just through love. And I, I just want to hear your comment on that if you have anything. Sure, and that, that is um, a common argument now being made, especially with regard to sexual issues is where it generally comes up. So it's, and, and in other areas, this has been the case um, over the years that people will give a vague, um, they, they will use a vague command and talk about it as though it does away with all the specific commands um, that are in Scripture. And so, um, and so mo- most people understand that whether you're talking about same sex or, or heterosexual um, sex, that the Bible restricts that kind of activity to uh, a married couple, a husband and wife. Um, and, um, and so, but, the, but they'll try to say, well, um, even though you have that specificity, um, we are called to love everybody. Um, well, again, the command that we love doesn't do away with the specifics. And as a matter of fact, um, I think that we could argue that we're not loving people if we um, allow them to persist in things that the Bible calls sin. Now, should we, should we love people that live together before they get married or that um, engage in extramarital sex or that are uh, homosexuals? Should we love those people? Absolutely. Um, we, um, we shouldn't call them names. Um, we shouldn't deny their civil rights. Um, we, should, um, we should treat them with respect as people that, uh, like the rest of us, that bear the image of God even though it's been marred by sin. And so we, we, we should love them. Um, but that doesn't mean that we, we change our understanding that is clearly biblical in terms of what sin is. So I think that's the way that I would, um, that I would react to that. Did you have other thoughts, or did that get at what you were asking about? Sure, it does. And just sort of confirms what I'm thinking. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not opposed to what you're thinking, because I'd probably be wrong. <laughs> Yeah. I'm commenting that though is so often that those folks in the elders, whatever that lots of initials, yes. Um, they they relate love to accepting who I am. And as a Christian or who I am, I cannot accept how they live, but I can love who they are. Mm-hmm. But they say they're one and the same. So if you're going to love me, you have to accept and support and affirm my lifestyle. And and that's very true. So you know, and all we and can that's do. Hard for a Christian then to. What, you know, how can I tell you what the difference is? And that's true. And for for some folks, um, we're not going to satisfy them. <clears throat> but it, it's not. 
I, we can't take responsibility for whether somebody's satisfied or not. What we can do is um, what we're supposed to do, which is love our neighbor as ourselves. And so treat people respectfully. You know, if they're in need, give them a cup of water in Jesus' name. Um, Rosaria Butterfield has written about this better than anyone I know, and I've talked about her in previous classes. But if you've, um, if you've not um, read her um, book about her own conversion, um, something of an unlikely convert. I never can remember the name. Do you, you've corrected me before. Secret Thoughts, Secret thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, Butterfield was, uh, um, for those of you that weren't here for the previous class when I talked about this, she was a professor at Syracuse University, women's studies professor, um, wrote some of the original um, conduct codes uh, back a couple of decades ago that um, some of us really uh, despise and possibly make fun of. and so she was, she was an activist. She was a, a lesbian and a lesbian activist. And over a long period of time of um, conversations with a Presbyterian pastor in her area, after she had written something nasty about Christianity, the pastor um, reached out to her and asked if they could start having coffee or lunch together. And they met over a long period of time, and ultimately she came to faith in Christ. Um, and... It, talking about a dramatic conversion. But um, anyway, she has written articulately about this. And one of the things that she says that gets uh, me back to the point that you were making is that she says that before the Obergefell Supreme Court decision a few uh, few years ago that um, made um, same-sex marriage a constitutional right, that prior to that, tolerance was appreciated and valued. And so if you uh, did the kinds of things that we've been talking about, that was enough. But she argues that since the Obergefell decision, that full-blown acceptance is the only, um, is the only acceptable attitude. Um, now, again, I'll get to you in a second. Um, but again, I would say, you know, we, we should treat people respectfully um, and collegially and neighborly, lovingly, um, and um, I think on a personal level, that frequently is enough. Now, increasingly on a cultural and um, political level, it's not enough. And we see increasingly, we see that if, um, well, we've seen um, recently uh, with regard to the Salvation Army and the woman that was going to be singing at the Super Bowl. Um, Salvation Army, I don't know that they've ever been widely known for their view on same-sex marriage, but when she came out and said, well, I'm not going to sing and support that charity, um, if, um, if they're haters, <laughs> then um, suddenly um, they were confronted. Are we going to affirm what we've um, always said or not? And so I think on a culture, cultural level, we're going to face a lot of opposition but with our neighbors and friends and fa- you know family members, um, if we just uh, treat people respectfully, most of the time I think that they'll appreciate that, and at some point there may be an opportunity to, over time, share the gospel with them. Yeah. Um, just like on a broader scale, I think um, you know as our society becomes more secularized, people tend to um, 
think of themselves um, as being good or bad or other people being good or bad based on a certain held set of beliefs that have nothing to do with God's law, but have to do with, you know, um, whatever's popular, you know, in, you know, progressive circles or in sometimes uh, conservative circles. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can, can cut both ways. I mean, mm-hmm. you have people who are just as almost religiously fanatic about their conservative beliefs as people on the left are about their... Yeah, and we have, we have nowadays... Let me see if I can say something remotely controversial to make you think, but not make you mad. We have this uh, we have this conflict in place right now where, um, in our culture, most people don't regard sexual activity as sinful at all, as long as there's consent. So they don't think any sexual activity is is sin. There are some church people that sexual sin is the only kind they ever talk about. Um, and we don't uh, deal adequately with other kinds of sin, like the one that Paul's about to talk about that we've got to get to. But um, but do, do you see uh, do you see why we're disconnecting? Um, it, it's not surprising that people get angry at the church if the if the church talks a lot about homosexuality, for example, and we don't talk about anything else. And by the way, it's easy to talk about homosexuality because I'm not a homosexual. You can talk about that all day long. You're never going to hit me. So, you know, yeah, praise the Lord. That's right. Um, but um, it's, it's important. And, and I'm not belittling confronting sin where it is. But, um, but I am saying that we need a more robust and wider range of understanding of what sin is. Um, and by the way, we, we need to know what sin is so that we can... Uh, flee to the grace of God because we have a Savior of sinners. Um, so that's the other aspect of that that we need to keep in mind. Can I talk? Go ahead. The aspect you brought up of sexuality is kind of, to me, uh, just a byproduct of this love trumping the Scripture. And I, I think that... I think it's a, actually more, more of a problem than just this area. Absolutely. Absolutely. It could be a part of the problem of mooching. It, it, it is. Let's, let's talk about mooching. Okay, starting with verse uh, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received uh, from us. And then look down at verse 13. We will get to what's in between. Uh, But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, it's interesting that Paul's language on the one hand sounds very harsh here. Don't have anything to do with him. And yet it's, it's, it's almost as though he takes back with one hand what he's said with the other. Because you notice that these that are being idle, he, talk, he does talk about them as brothers. And I point this out because this language is harsh in, in, some, in some respects in the same way that 
There's harsh language in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul explicitly tells them that they are to put a man out of the church. In the situation in 1 Corinthians 5, um, a man was having uh, relations with his father's wife, with his stepmother. And so Paul says, you're proud of yourselves that you're letting this go on. Even pagans wouldn't do this. Um, And so Paul tells them to put this man out of the church. Paul doesn't say that sort of thing um, here. Instead, even though he has strong language about uh, keeping away from them, but he says keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And then at the end, he says, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But then he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So don't have anything to do with him, but don't regard him as an enemy. So you see the, the, the tension in the language that's here. So it seems that what Paul has in mind is that this is an infection in the church that needs to be pointed out as an infection. And so it can't be that these brothers who are walking in idleness, that is, it's not just kind of a one-time thing, it's uh, uh, they, are, they are actively idle, <laughs> is, is the way I'm thinking about it. They are actively idle. And so Paul is not, uh, Paul is saying here that this infection of idleness, this infection of mooching on the generosity of the church is something that can't be spread. Those that are engaging in this kind of inactivity um, cannot be seen as influential in the church. And so there is a sense in which, because of the way that they're behaving, um, they need to be um, not put out of the church, but it needs to be made clear that this is unacceptable behavior. And sometimes that's really difficult to do. You know, sometimes it'd be easier just to say, you know, you need to move on, not be around here. It, it's actually hard to keep people in the church, but say your behavior is not acceptable. Now, it may be that if they continued not to respond or if they became troublesome within the church that further steps would be necessary but for now Paul's counsel is um, these folks need to understand clearly that their behavior is unacceptable that needs to be absolutely clear to them and to the rest of the church that this is not acceptable Um, but you are to regard them as a brother and not as an enemy. And so that's the line that Paul seems to be walking here. Now, um, why, why, were these, uh, why were these idlers, or these, as I keep calling them, moochers, why were they here? Why, what, was, what was happening? Well, it seems that there were a couple of things that were happening um, here in the church in Thessalonica. One is, and, and um, for those of you that have been a part of the class all along, um, we talked about this also when Paul dealt with this in First Thessalonians. But part of what seems to be happening here is that people had some wrong ideas about the second coming of Christ. And so they had decided, well, we don't have to work because um, Christ is coming back. And so we're going to do, we're, we're going to take some time off and just prepare ourselves for his coming. 
And so they had crossed onto the wrong side of the line of the right side of the line is Christ could come back at any time. But they had crossed away from that and they had decided Christ is going to come back uh, real soon. And so they, um, they had decided that the uh, return of Christ was imminent. It reminds me, uh, a few years back, I heard a guy on TV, he said, um, I've been preaching for 40 years that the return of Christ is imminent. I thought, do you know what the word imminent means? But anyway, um, they, had decided that, uh, they, they had decided that Christ was coming back right away, and so they didn't have to work. Oh, and by the way, God has commanded us to be generous to one another. And so if he's a little more delayed than, I, than I'm thinking, and I run out of uh, food for my family, well, the church will take care of me. And so there was a presumption upon the generosity of the church. Now, Paul is not saying here that the church should not be generous. The church should be generous. And he, he says uh, that, um, that even in uh, this passage, he says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. He says the same thing elsewhere in, um, in Galatians 6. Wow, it's late. In Galatians 6, he writes, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In Romans 15, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And so, Paul talks elsewhere and here about the fact that um, we as Christians should be generous to others, and particularly we should be generous to others within the church. If we see people going through hard times, if somebody loses a job or has some sort of uh, setback that they can't overcome, we ought to stand willing to help to the best of our ability. That is uh, what Christians and what the church should do. Um, as we are able and as we see need. But the fact of generosity doesn't mean that we should be naive. Um, Again, you have to think about what is truly loving. Is it loving to help somebody that's taking advantage of you? And these uh, these folks that were idlers were uh, imposing upon the generosity of the church and Paul is saying, yeah, you, you, you should be generous. Look to do good, but don't just accept um, the word of folks that are refusing to work. Um, the other thing that Paul points out here is his own labor among them. And that brings up the other reason that this might have been happening. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, just like uh, with some folks in our day, there were people that looked down on manual labor. And so um, Paul here, you notice, emphasizes not only that he worked for his living while he was preaching, but he emphasizes that he worked with his hands. He was making tents. And so um, there was this attitude that, you know, well, work with your hands. That's the stuff that slaves do. Um, It's not something that that a free man does in Thessalonica. So I'm not going to do that kind of work. Um, there are people that have that, those kinds of attitudes today. Actually, 
Um, depending on the kind of work you do, you might look down at the opposite side. You know, so if you're a blue collar guy, all you do is sit behind a desk. You don't do any real work. Or if you sit behind a desk, you well, you know, that's dirty work. It's I'm not going to do that. Um, so you you see those kinds of attitudes um, today as well. But evidently, but it appears from Paul's emphasis on his own example. There may have been some that simply were looking down on certain kinds of labor. And so they said, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Church, take care of me because I'm, I'm too good for that kind of work. And so Paul here emphasizes that um, he had worked um, to support himself so that they would, he would not be imposing upon the generosity of the church. And his work had involved uh, manual labor. And so he uh, prohibits them. Um, from continuing in this idleness, whether it's for uh, reasons of bad doctrine or for reasons of, um, of bad attitudes toward um, all legal labor. Um, he uh, tells them that they should work, and if they refuse to work, um, they shouldn't be provided food by the church based on their refusal. Um, the other thing that I feel compelled to, to notice here, and it it's, should be obvious, but I have seen these verses used to talk about what a government welfare program should look like. Paul was not giving advice to the Roman government as to how to run their welfare benefits. Um, And so you may or may not decide that these are good principles for outside the church, but do understand that Paul is talking about charity within the church here. And so if you try to take it into another context... Um, you, you have some arguing to do in terms of how it should apply. So I'm not saying you can't do that, but just recognize that you're extending um, these ideas beyond the context that Paul is talking about them. This is dealing with how charitable activity should be conducted within the church and how we should encourage um, anybody that's refusing to work that they ought to work. So keep that in mind as well. I heard the bell. I've got to quit. Any final questions as we... Wrap up. Thank you for tolerating me the last three months. I've enjoyed teaching this class, and maybe someday they'll ask me to do it again. But um, in the meantime, I'm looking forward to hearing John talk about church history. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that it would be a uh, lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that you would help us to uh, be obedient and wise. Uh, with regard to the things that uh, we have talked about in this chapter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.